Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Survival is the rule of the day. My jaw was broken. I could feel my molars in the centre of my mouth. We weren't out there to take country. We were out there. At the end of the day, everyone wearing green is a soldier. Getting yourself blown up does some interesting things to you. Uh, a place like the Middle East is constantly There's changing. What we do there is constantly changing. We killed, though. And this, the thing was our own minefield. He hauled me up with a broken whiskey bottle and machete. Today is an interview with Guy Griffiths, who retired from the Royal Australian Navy at the rank of Rear Admiral. Guy is a veteran of World War II, Korea and Vietnam, so this is a very special interview. Enjoy the conversation. I'm Angus Horden, and today we're joined by Guy Griffiths. Guy, thank you for speaking with us today. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, Guy, can you tell us when you first joined the Navy, please? Uh, I first joined the Royal Australian Naval College back on the 28th of January, 1937. And what inspired you to do that then? Well, I grew up in the Hunter Valley and uh, had a keenness towards engineering at the time and I'd spent two years in a technical school in West Maitland and uh, somebody obviously discussed it with my parents and they said, why don't you put him in the Navy? Well, the put-in aspect, of course, was a bit daunting. Anyway, I was lucky. It was my first lotto win. I, 17, were selected for college at that time and uh, I think over 400 had applied around the, from around the nation to enter the Navy at that time. And what was training like back then? Well, training was, of course, very disciplined, um, and um, it was, uh, in the modern-day language, you probably call it a culture shock, which I'm sure it was whether you came from the country or city. Uh, but it was four years uh, intensive training. Uh, it was good. It didn't do us any harm. My ambition to be an engineer on entering the college, I gave that away at the end of the second year and selected to be an executive officer, a change that I never regretted. Where did you do your initial training? At the uh, the college was at Flinders Naval Depot, which is on the Mornington Peninsula, uh, some 50 miles, or 80 kilometres uh, south of Melbourne. And when did you finish the training and, and where did that take you? We finished on the, uh, after a 13-week term, we graduated on the 13th of December 1940, uh, had some leave, and then we took passage. We'd been posted to the cruiser, 8-inch uh, cruiser Australia, which at that time was in England or in the North Atlantic waters. And so we were sent across in a merchantman from, uh, we went over to New Zealand, a Shaw Savile uh, merchantman, named Karamea, and uh, through the Panama Canal, changed from summer on the south, southern hemisphere to middle of winter in the north, was a bit of a change, and arrived in Glasgow, I think, in early February. By that time, of course, Australia was nearly back in Australia here, and so they looked around and found uh, space for us in the battlecruiser Repulse. Uh, So five of us, a group of five, uh, we joined Repulse in Greenock and the Firth of Clyde, uh, I think it was um, 8, 8 March 1941. And what was the big mission for the Repulse at that time? 
escorting convoys in the North Atlantic and also patrolling against uh, any raiders that uh, Germany had at, out in the North Atlantic waters. Not too many, but some of them were effective. Uh, we took part in the chase the Bismarck, uh, endeavouring to hunt that down uh, to, in the home fleet. Uh, we were uh, deployed with uh, King George V, the new battleship, and also the aircraft carrier Victorious. And uh, but uh, Repulse being an old ship, at the end of about three days, high speed in the North Atlantic, uh, we were running out of fuel, and so we were detached, went to uh, uh, Conception Bay in Newfoundland to refuel. By that time, of course, uh, the Bismarck had been sunk, and uh, we went into Halifax, and um, then escorted convoy back across to England. Guy, just stepping back to the Bismarck engagement with the Hood, the Hood at that stage was the pride of the Royal Navy. Um, and I've spoken with many um, naval personnel and the shock that that fell upon the entire nation when the news came out that Bismarck had sunk Hood. How did you feel when you got that news? Well, we got the news in the morning, I think, of about the 25th of May, 24th, 25th. And... Uh, we got it at breakfast time in the gun room, and uh, I must say it's sort of uh, it, uh, it was a very sobering uh, feeling. Uh, not we were drunk, of course, but uh, very sobering thought that uh, the Bismarck was so such a threat. What we as midshipmen at that stage uh, didn't really understand that the size of armament, armored decks, and ship sides, and so on, and the fact that the the uh, Bismarck was an outstanding latest design battleship, heavily armoured in all aspects of weapons and armoured sheathing around the hull. And, of course, Hood was lightly armoured as a battle cruiser. And so um, their first salvos uh, collected the Hood and their gunnery, of course, was very accurate. And, yes, it was a very a daunting thought and uh, I have used the expression since that when we were supposed to see her in the dawn of the 25th, 26th of May, 41, um, I, I have said we were probably quite lucky not to have met her. Well, indeed, I think that every ship that went up against the Bismarck ship on ship would have feared coming off second best. It was just that the Royal Navy had such a wonderful collection of ships and could put so many good vessels um, into the action. And I, I recall actually King George itself only had a couple of hours of fuel left on board, I think, when, when she eventually polished off the Bismarck. Yes, I, I think that's right. We mustn't forget that uh, tremendous role played by those uh, old swordfish aircraft from the aircraft carrier uh, Victorious, which was, I understand, was still unpacking them in the hangar uh, because she was very new. And of course, you had the Ark Royal that came across from the uh, from Gibraltar, and so the the work that they did actually disabled the Bismarck and enabled the surface ships to get in contact. It's quite ironic, isn't it, that the most modern battleship um, is brought down by a biplane, um, which, as my father, a shipmate of yours on board the Shropshire, explained to me, the German gunners were firing in front the swordfish because they expected them to go a lot faster and being such a slow craft so many of them got through he explained yeah. 
and they, that lucky shot on the rudder, as you said, crippled Bismarck and made your job a lot easier. I mean, right. probably ensured that you're here today. Absolutely. And, of course, what wasn't known at the time that the Prince of Wales, uh, who had engaged the Bismarck with the hood, um, actually uh, damaged the Bismarck. And that wasn't known until the end of the war. And she'd uh, put a hole in the forward fuel tank and that uh, allowed uh, water to get in the Bismarck, so she was slightly down by the bow. And that uh, may have gave them grounds for the decision. Instead of continuing to patrol, they were, they were headed back to Brest. Guy, after the Bismarck engagement, where did you go next? Well, we, we patrolled around uh, various areas in the Atlantic area between Gibraltar and the UK. We didn't go into the Mediterranean at all. We eventually uh, ended up in Resyth Dockyard for a slight overhaul in uh, July, I think it was July, August. And then after that, we were deployed to Singapore at the start of Churchill's build-up for uh, some force, which he, at that time, he wanted to deter the Japanese Navy from uh, getting around the Singapore area. Well, deterrence is a, a very complicated thing. You have to sort of match force with force. That wasn't a case when it was just uh, Prince of Wales and Repulse and four destroyers, which formed force said in Singapore at the beginning of December '41. Guy, let's talk about force said because it's actually an incredible um, action that takes place, and it's the end of British sea power in the Far East, as they referred to it? Well, Force said uh, we deployed. Uh, we'd opened fire on the 8th of December when we were in the Johor Strait uh, berth. But in the evening of the 8th, we uh, sailed. At that time, Admiral Phillips was actually told on departing Chengi we would not have any air cover at the time, but uh, he allegedly said, well, we have to get on without it. So we uh, deployed, uh, went eastward around the Anambra Islands and then north, we turned north at about four o'clock in the morning of the 9th, which dawned rain showers and low cloud, which was great for us because it uh, allowed us to uh, use the factor of surprise. But unbeknown to us at the time, at about one o'clock on the 9th, a submarine had sighted us and reported us. And then later in the afternoon, I think it was about uh, 5.30 in the afternoon, three aircraft, which subsequently one discovered had been launched from cruisers. Of course, they also reported us, but we did sight those aircraft late in the afternoon of the 9th, and uh, at about uh, 8 o'clock in the evening, the Admiral decided the element of surprise had been lost, and so we retraced our steps and headed back to Singapore. So, Guy, with Force Z, I think it's important for our listeners to take perspective of the situation because here we are... The Japanese have just attacked the American fleet at Pearl Harbor, totally surprised them and disabled their battleships. Fortunately, their uh, carriers get out. And here we are on the 10th of December, literally within a week. Um, we've got the Japanese down our throats again. The British Army and the British Air Force are struggling in Malaya and the Navy go out to do their part. And from what I understand... Churchill, in trying to put this fleet together, unfortunately lacked the important ingredient of carrier support. And they had planned to bring the Indomitable in, 
but unfortunately she'd run aground in the Caribbean and, and didn't join your force. And suddenly you've got these British ships exposed to all these Japanese bombers. Can you tell us what happened next? When we were heading back to Singapore, the Admiral received a signal in the early hours of the 10th that there'd been a landing at Quanton, which is on the east coast of Malaya, as it was in those days. So he altered to go over and have a look and see what was going on. Uh, so this early morning on the 10th, we found nothing in the Quanton area. But instead of going sort of full speed ahead and heading back to Singapore, the Admiral stayed around a bit to investigate uh, some barges which were being towed and so on. And, of course, at 10.15, we were sighted by Japanese aircraft and um, at the first air raid was at 11 o'clock, high-level bombing raid, which targeted Repulse. They had one hit uh, on us, but it didn't penetrate their armoured deck. Uh, it hit the Marines' mess deck, casualties and so on. This was foresaid now, engaged by the Japanese. And, of course, it was a relentless attack. And what we didn't know was that uh, some 85 aircraft, which had been based in Saigon or near Saigon, as it was then, uh, had flown across the Gulf and attacked us and were there already. And they were their ace torpedo bombing squadrons, twin, twin engine aircraft, and they were very good. And, of course, as we know, both ships were sunk. But force said as such really wasn't of the firepower and it, it was not the deterrent that Churchill hoped it would be. Somehow or other, this lack of estimation or assessment of the power of the Japanese Navy at the time and the, the military organisation that they had, which was, you know, to have to look back on it now and say it was first class. Guy, the support squadrons out of Singapore eventually come to you. Um, there's the 10 buffaloes that are flown out by the, by the RAF and apparently they flew over as Prince of Wales actually slipped below the waters. And all they report back was seeing a lot of sailors in the water, uh, yourself included, that had escaped the sinking of the Repulse and the Prince of Wales. Can you relive those moments when the torpedoes hit Repulse and the panic starts? Just as a background on that, it was interesting that Admiral Phillips when the first raid came over Repulse at 11 o'clock, did not send a signal to Singapore base, to the headquarters, letting them know that we were actually under air attack. And so the aircraft that arrived when Prince of Wales was sinking only did so because Captain Tennant, a great captain in Repulse, uh, had sent a subsequent signal, well, it wasn't subsequent, it was the first one that informed anybody of the problem we were facing. And so it was only then that the air squadron could get airborne and come out to us. And so hence they arrived late. But it wasn't their fault because nobody had informed them. In fact, even the naval headquarters didn't know anything about it. But um, attacks, well, we had uh, a first torpedo came, attack came in at about um, uh, 11 o'clock, I think, uh, between 11 and 11.30. And um, the second at about uh, nearly closer to 12, and the last attack close to 12.30 in the afternoon. The torpedo bombing attacks, uh, the first one around about the 11 o'clock, uh, sorry, 11.30, concentrated uh, on both ships. Captain Tennant 
was a bit of an expert in ship handling and managed to dodge. It was estimated that he actually dodged about 19 torpedoes. And so we were still living. But on the other hand, at that attack, Prince of Wales was hit hit in her rudder which uh, and the port side, which really put the ship out of action. So she wasn't under control anymore. She could not steam. And so she was a sitting duck for the subsequent torpedo attacks on her. We had five torpedo attacks around about 12.20 or something in the afternoon. One hit on the starboard side. Uh, didn't really affect us because it hit the uh, protection area. And uh, then, but unfortunately, a few minutes later, we were hit by four torpedoes on the port side. And uh, down below, you could feel the old lady was uh, moving, um, not forward or ahead or astern, but rather you could feel her going down. And so the captain timely ordered uh, all hands on deck, stand by to abandon ship. And that enabled lots and lots of people to uh, make the thing. There was no panic, highly organized uh, uh, to get up on deck. Uh, Those that got up late, uh, I managed to get up onto a mess deck and find that the, uh, what we call scuttles and what everybody refers to as portholes, open and so I got through one, slid down the ship's side on the starboard side, the high end, and uh, swam away. Uh, very, very lucky. That was my, one might say my first, well, entering college was the first lottery win in those days and so certainly getting out of repulse at that time was certainly the second. When you hit the water, what was the reaction? Well, just one of relief really that you were away from something that was sinking. We could swim. And so I swam away. I still had my white shoes on from tropical gear. They have fine protected my feet sliding down the ship's side. But of course, when you get in the water and you want to swim, shoes on is a different uh, pace. So um, I managed it. I got, got to the nearest destroyer. Guy, I'd like to read to you an account by Flying Lieutenant Vigors, who was part of 453 Squadron, the RAF Squadron of Buffaloes that flew over. And he wrote an account which was later published in the London Gazette and I, and I just briefly quoted, he said, it was obvious that three destroyers were going to take hours to pick up hundreds of men clinging to bits of wreckage and swimming about in the filthy, oily water. Above all this, though, the threat of another bombing and machine gun attack was imminent. Every one of those men must have realised that. Yes, I flew around. Every man waved and put his thumb up as I flew over him. After an hour, lack of petrol forced me to leave. But during that hour, I had seen many men in dire danger, waving, cheering and joking, as if they were holiday makers at Brighton, waving at my low-flying aircraft. It shook me, for here was something above human nature. So, Guy, you were one of those men in the water. Do you remember the buffaloes flying over? I can remember them flying over, yes. I... Personally, was really swimming by myself. There was some uh, fellows not close to me, so I wasn't uh, trying to stand up in the water, so to speak, and, and wave to the aircraft. I didn't do that. Uh, but people on Kali floats and other pieces of timber and so on, where they had some support, were waving, and some of the chaps in the floats or, uh, were singing. Uh, I, it, it was a reaction. It was a, an act of defiance in a way, I think. And you climbed aboard, was, was it Electra or Vampire? Electra, yeah. So Electra saved you. Yeah. It said, Guy, that nothing shocked Churchill more 
than the report of the loss of the Repulsum Prince of Wales. I can imagine that. It was his idea of the deterrent, which hadn't worked out. But he'd had a very bad year in the Royal Navy. I think in the beginning of 41, I think it was the Ark Royal was sunk in the Western Med. Two of the battleships in Alexandra Harbour had been uh, torpedoed by uh, Italian midget submarines. What we didn't know at the time, that the cruiser of Sydney had been sunk off Western Australia in November. Finally, of course, he loses two battleships uh, in Force Zed. So it wasn't a good year at all for the Royal Navy. And I mean, they'd lost cruisers in Crete, in Greece area. All in all, things weren't for smiling. I mean, and certainly, and again, just only a week before with Pearl Harbor, the Japanese seemed to have swept the American battleships away. Now the only really noted British force, Force Z, had now been knocked out. It seemed that the Far East, the Near East to us, was now very open to the Japanese. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. So, Guy, you're able to recover on Electra. You get back to Singapore. You fortunately get out of Singapore before it falls. Can you tell us what happens? Uh, well, we went back to Colombo and very kind people um, billeted us. Well, I think we had about four or five days leave, survivors leave, and then we were posted across the island to Trincomalee Harbour to join the battleship Revenge. And uh, so we joined Revenge, which was the guard ship in Trincomalee. And from our point of view, we didn't really know much about what was going on, although we were eventually informed about the fall of Singapore. But we stayed in Trincomalee Harbour for about seven weeks and never moved out to sea. In April of 42, the Japanese carrier force came across the Bay of Bengal to raid Colombo. And of course, at that time, I think it was early April, Japanese sank the Hermes, the old carrier Hermes, and along with her escort, Vampire, HMAS Vampire. So we then went back to Mombasa on the east coast of Africa and Kenya. And we worked out of there until uh, we continued our midshipman's training. Eventually left about uh, May, June, went back to England for more training. When um, you finished the training, what was your next posting? I had time to fill in because I knew, or at least we all knew, that we were going to be posted to Shropshire, HMS Shropshire. Well, she was HMS at the time. Uh, so I filled in time in an old... Uh, V&W-class destroyer, HMS Vivian, which was operating in the uh, Resyth Escort Force. The Escort Force was covering ships, the old coastal ships, and but we had to sort of muster these ships into a convoy out of Sheerness and uh, take them back down again. The months of January through to April, some of the most unattractive in the, the North Sea, and those were the days when you're watching these little fellas buffeting the seas astern of you from some miles. When um, you eventually get to Shropshire, you're suddenly then with a lot of Australians who have been posted. List. You've got the guys who survived Canberra plus the rest of the new commissioning crew. So you're now on an Australian ship, mostly with Australian personnel. How did that feel? Well, it was uh, it was quite unique, you see, for having left... Um, and done a couple of years, and it was one's first Australian ship. And uh, it was a bit of a contrast, but it was a pleasant contrast. And uh, we just got on with life, and that was it. Australia and Shropshire were really 
Australia's capital warships at that time. Yes, they were. And in the Pacific campaign, the Navy that were allocated to the Seventh Fleet, and and soon as you were to find back into the thick of things, certainly with regard to when you took on the Philippines and the kamikazes. We were in Maritai before, uh, before landing at Lady Gulf, and that was uh, Lady Gulf was 20 October 44. The war for us certainly intensified because it brought increased air attacks. Australia was hit and lost quite a number of officers and sailors, and she had to retire on virtually on the second day that we were in Lady Gulf. We were just carried on uh, supporting the landings ashore and also defending the uh, the transports, etc., with our anti-aircraft fire and uh, protecting ourselves. Between uh, New Britain and round about the western end of New Guinea, I was in the turrets, which is pretty uncomfortable in the tropics, but everybody else was below decks. Well, not everybody, but uh, all those below decks were suffering from the lack of ventilation, no air conditioning, of course, in those days. Uh, but at Moritai, I was given a position as air defence officer on the port side to look after the port side of the ship. And that just meant uh, directing the guns, weapon systems, uh, to the most threatening aircraft. I stayed there for Lady Gulf and Lingayen Gulf. Whilst I might have had a ringside seat, it was also a pretty busy one. Guy, can you mention Bracegirdle? Warwick Bracegirdle was an outstanding character. I don't think I realised at the time that uh, Warwick had been the gunnery officer of the Perth in the Mediterranean at the time of the uh, Greece and Crete campaign. So he had considerable experience being bombed by Stukas, etc., in the Med. Uh, so he had a great uh, overview and anticipation of what he needed in Shropshire. And uh, we, of course, came out with the old Ehrlichan gun which was not terribly good against Japanese high-speed aircraft. And the story goes that um, at some stage, he almost went ashore in one of our harbours, I think it was in the Admiralty Islands in Seattle Harbour, and uh, with a case of whiskey on his shoulders and uh, got us about uh, 10 or more Bofors guns, 40 mil Bofors guns, and that changed everything. So we were able to use, under Brace's direction, we had fitted Shropshire with four directors, one for each turret, eight-inch turret, which mean, meant that we could uh, fire an eight-inch high-explosive shell and burst it at a barrage range, say 3,000 yards or something like that as it was. And um, you put up a barrier of very lethal amount of metal in the air uh, for anybody attacking. Uh, so much so that uh, the Japanese weren't used to this and there was a report that Tokyo Rose, who was always broadcasting from Japan as to what was going on, accused us of having flamethrowers. Well, of course we didn't, but we had an effective means of deterring them from coming into the ship. Not all of them. Some attacked very directly and were fortunately were destroyed. But um, <clears throat> our 8-inch guns, uh, we were also accused of turning aircraft away that were attacking us, and they'd go and attack somebody else. Yes, I, I'd heard that one of the many salvations of the Shropshire was by being able to elevate your eight-inch guns, I think almost up to 90 degrees, you could throw out this massive firepower of, of serious armament. And in fact, I remember my dad saying that it was reported the kamikazes that were 
designated to attack Shropshire actually veered off and attacked Australia because of the severe anti-air that Shropshire was able to throw up. Captain, the Australia sent a signal like, to the effect that you knock them down, we'll catch them because Australia suffered again at Lingayen Gulf. She was hit five times, once in the approach and then uh, four times while we were supporting the softening up the bombard the landing area and so on. And at the end of the first day of the landing on the 9th of January, the dear old Australia looking very crippled and damaged and they had lost quite a few people. Uh, she retired. She didn't come back into the war after that. And Guy, how many men did you lose on the lucky ship? On the lucky ship, we didn't lose any. I mean, and how many capital ships can say that, being mindful of what actions? I mean, the kamikazes came at you guys first and you got through them all. We were lucky. Uh, well, we called ourselves a lucky ship, or certainly afterwards. Uh, but, for instance, uh, the um, frigate Gascoigne, which was surveying before we ever arrived in these landing areas. Gascoigne spotted one attacking us and shot it out of the sky. Otherwise, it could well board in on Shropshire because we hadn't seen it. But another one, there was a late sighting. Um, we had on board uh, leading seaman Roy Kazali, who was the son of the great AFL player up there, Kazali. And um, he was on his gun and suddenly, uh, we didn't do it for the air defence position, we hadn't sighted it. Somebody pointed out this aircraft coming down out of the sun and Roy spun his pom-pom um, gun, which had four barrels, 40 mil, and uh, shot it out of the sky, uh, for which he got a well-earned uh, Distinguished Service Medal. Can the lucky ship also thank its lucky skipper? John Collins was our first skipper on commissioning and then we had Captain Showers. And then the third skipper we had was uh, Captain Godfrey Nichols from Royal Navy. And he joined us about the time of the Moratai landings, which would have probably been September 44. So he arrived in time to sort of jump in at the deep end, but he was a marvellous skipper. The ship's company never forgot him. He was marvellous. You know, his attitude, his demeanour, his uh, understanding and his trust, I think, in the team. And uh, the ship's company of Shropshire was very much a team. And uh, Godfrey Nichols just placed trust in us, and uh, that's the way it went. It was explained to me that Nichols played a very important role in the D-Day landings for the Navy and that he wasn't able to be released at that time and, and they released him into the Pacific later and that's why he saw action with Shropshire after the D-Day landings. Yes, I'd forgotten that, yes. There are so many close encounters with Shropshire but you get through the kamikazes. Can we talk about how... Your cruiser took on a battleship at one. As part of the l landing in Lingayen Gulf, I think uh, we went in on the 20th and on the 24th of October. About four days later, uh, we uh, moved from supporting the landings to the northern end of what's known as the Surigao Strait, which is at the south end of southern part of uh, Leyte Gulf. And uh, a Japanese force was coming through from the uh, west. And uh, so we positioned uh, the admiral in charge, uh, American admiral in charge, positioned six battleships, about eight cruisers and about uh, nearly 30 destroyers, I think, and some PT boats. We virtually fought a night action down there. But we fired full flash cordite, which meant, meant we really lit, lit up everything around us. But all the Americans used flashless cordite but they had tracer in their shells, so you could see these lines of tracers when we opened fire at uh, 
about uh, just uh, about 3.55 in the morning. Uh, lines of traces all sort of hose piping firepower to the enemy. And the lead ship coming up was the Yamashira, the flagship Japanese admiral. There were two two battleships. One was the Fuso, which had succumbed to, uh, I think, first of all, to the initial torpedo attacks by destroyers. And uh, then the Yamashiro received the heavy fire of battleships, cruisers. And we were in the middle of that with, uh, with our radar-guided solution. We claimed that we made some very definite hits. We fired with 32 broadsides or something. That's not eight eight-inch guns each time, but it was a very active period of only about 12 minutes, by which time the, the enemy had really been disabled. And I understand that about half of your shots actually hit the Amashiro. Yes, I'm not quite sure how we, we estimate they might have landed on the target, but uh, there's nobody from the Amashiro telling us, that, yes, those were the 18th shuttles from Shropshire. <laughs> You finished that battle, reported to be the last major night battle in the war, and part of the Battle of the Philippines is the largest naval battle of all time. You've gone through the kamikazes, and eventually Japan is defeated, and you're on board Shropshire in Tokyo Bay. Yes, we received the news of the peace overtures in Subic Bay. One of the things we did in Subic Bay, just before I get to Tokyo, in Shropshire we had a celebration. And I must say, it um, exercised the mind. Of, we'd all been engaged in this war game for three or four years. And um, then suddenly, uh, tomorrow morning, it doesn't exist anymore. I remember going up on deck and thinking to myself, well, I wonder what happens to me now from here on, where, what really happens. We had a party on the quarterdeck and we invited, oh, I think, about 400 officers from our task force. During that party, a couple of our engineer officers uh, discovered two new engineering lieutenants with the color of their shoulder boards and so on. And it was uh, eventually discovered that uh, two of the very enterprising stokers had decided they'd like to join the party. So they went and collected a couple sets of shoulder boards and they had a great time on uh, drinking beer and so on. Of course, needless to say, they came up in front of the commander a couple of days later. The commander, the great fellow, um, Copper Morrow, said, um, and did you fellas enjoy the party? And I enthusiastically replied, yes, sir, it was great, it was marvellous. He said, well, that's good. He said it cost each of the water officers 35 shillings each to contribute to that party, so he said... You're each fine 35 shillings and was on caps about turn and double march. <laughs> I thought it was the most appropriate piece of judgment and sentence that, uh, at the time. It was excellent. Anyway, we subsequently left Subic and uh, together with a huge collection of ships mustered in Tokyo Bay a couple of days in early September. Uh, and, of course, we were present and within sight of the... Uh, American battleship Missouri. There were some 250 warships in the bay at that time. It was really, as far as you could see, ships everywhere, anchored, of course. And then uh, for the day of signing the surrender, the sky was filled with American aircraft. It was a huge, huge, colossal show of strength. And I mean, all the fast carrier force of the American Navy of the Fifth Fleet 
uh, under Admiral Nimitz coming across through the Central Pacific. They were all there. There must have been probably 25, 30 fast carriers outside flying their aircraft off. But the effect watching it from Tokyo Bay was incredible. 25, 30 carriers. Can you imagine that number considering that at Midway they won with three and how the American sea power, once it had the chance to build up, you know, as, as uh, Yamamoto said, you know, it's only a time game. If we can knock them out quickly and yeah. get peace, but when they rebuild, we won't be able to stop them. Well, of course, in the Battle of Midway, they were virtually fighting with the carriers that weren't in Pearl Harbor, and if they had been knocked out, it would have taken longer yeah. to change them. I think that's the point. It just would have taken longer. It would have taken longer. Oh, yes, it was a determination that this should not go on too long. Guy, um, you see the conclusion of World War Two, and you recover from the war. You've come back to Australia. Can you share the, what happens between then and then later you're drawn into another war? I think uh, many, many uh, ships uh, went back or came back to Australia and there really wasn't much to do and they sort of probably wondered exactly what they were going to do. I was very lucky because I was... Um, Deployed from Shropshire, I took passage in a, a Royal Navy destroyer from uh, Tokyo Bay to Sydney because I'd been posted to England to undergo a specialist gunnery course, which at that time was for 15 months, beginning in January 46. So I ca came home, had uh, some leave, hopped in the Stirling Castle. Uh, I didn't have to keep watch, which was the first time at sea for a long time. And... Um, relaxed on the way to England and then got back to being a student, probably not a very bright one. A few cobwebs on the brain, I think, having left college at the end of 40, and here I was in January 46, trying to deal with the maths that I hadn't sort of touched for five years. Anyway, uh, 15 months of that, then two years exchange service in England. I was in a gunnery school down in Devonport, uh, in the West Country down in Devon, and it was... A marvellous two years, really, because uh, uh, there was no war going on, and so we got on with training people for the future. The West Country of England's a marvellous place to be in any, uh, at any time, even now. It was just great, great fun. And uh, then I came back to Australia in '49, a few months at the Gunnery School of Flinders, joined the aircraft carrier Sydney in January '50, and stayed in her for two years until March '52. And during that time, of course, she came back to England, or she went back to England, pick up another carrier air group, she being her first carrier, and uh, that was a whole new scene for the RAN. Finally, we had an aircraft carrier, naval air arm. Pity we don't have one today. Then, of course, in 51, about August 51, we went up to the Korean War. So it was a little bit more of the same, except we uh, had a very cold winter. We, Korean winters are extremely cool, cold, snow, ice, and so on. The air squadrons executed a great job uh, in uh, the Korean War, and we came back to Sydney, and then in uh, once again in March, I think it was March 52, they sent me back to the gunnery school at Flinders, and I protested because <laughs> I'd been ashore for two years in, Eng in England, and then 
just a couple of years in Sydney, and I thought I hadn't really got the balance right between sea and shore duty, complained a little bit, and so I was sent back to Korea in November 52 to join the destroyer Anzac, which was a new one of the new battle-class destroyers we had, two of them, Tobruk and Anzac. So I stayed in her until the end of 53. And, of course, that saw us through the Korean War till the armistice came in, in June. And um, once again, back home, middle of 53, I think, after the signing. But in January uh, 54, I was once again sent to UK for a staff course. So at that time, I went across and uh, spent six months staff course in the Royal Naval College at Greenwich, which is a wonderful place to be in. And uh, then uh, after that... Um, I waited for Melbourne, the new carrier Melbourne, with Angle Dick, uh, to commission in um, October 55, I think it was, and stayed in her virtually until the end of 58, but in two different jobs. Firstly, I was a gunnery officer. At the end of 56, I was promoted to commander and became the fleet operations officer to Admiral Harry's and then Admiral Burrell. And so at the end of 58, uh, having had a fair interesting time uh, once again ashore into a shore job staff job so after korea you're starting to get your taste of command roles and you're promoted to be commander and then your first actual command in 61 on board the Parramatta. that's right yes a uh, big change in life in 59 in august i married and that changed uh, life and was uh, wonderful after a while in staff job, I'm sure you do get itchy feet, but I was very lucky to be posted as captain in the rank of commander, but in, as captain of the uh, the new river-class uh, frigate, um, anti-submarine frigate, HMAS Parramatta. And so I stayed uh, in Parramatta from uh, July 61, and 4th of July we commissioned. Stayed in her until um, the end of 62, I think, in about 18 months. Then it was once again back to Navy office. 64, I was promoted to captain. And in 65, the chief of Navy in those days, known as the chief of Naval Staff, was Admiral Harrington. He called me in one day and he said, uh, Griffiths, I, I think looking at your future, I think I want to send you to New Delhi as our um, uh, naval attache. What do you think of that? And at that time of my life, I didn't think very much of that, so I said so. He said, no, well, he said, um, that's what I thought. So he said, you better go over to America and uh, take uh, command of the second of the guided missile destroyers, HMAS Hobart. Walked out of his office feeling 10 feet tall, you know. <laughs> it was a great thing. Let me think, uh, in uh, March 67, we were the first ship uh, committed to join the 7th Fleet in the Vietnam War. And so we went up there and um, spent six months supporting the Americans. And uh, I think we, we acquitted ourselves reasonably well. In fact, I know we did. Funny, it's the 7th Fleet that you served in in a second war. That's right. In one situation in Vietnam, we had a number of shore batteries firing at us. Normally, the instructions were that you were not to go back to engage in a battle with the shore batteries. 
Uh, well, this particular day, we were shot at by some of these fellas, and I had a spotting aircraft uh, from one of the carriers, a Hancock, I think. So I thought, well, go back. With my five-inch guns, I could outrange them. So I thought, well, why not take them on at 20,000 yards, and uh, we'll see what we can do. The spotting aircraft spotted our shells all right along the, the range of guns, the whole lot of them, and we obliterated them. Can we talk about how you leave your frigate and you go into Melbourne? I came out of Hobart in September uh, 67, once again to Navy office, you know, 67 to 73. In mid-73, I was um, posted to as captain of Melbourne, the flagship. It was just a great time to be back, you know, in command. And, of course, after all, she was the flagship. So, Guy, you're CEO on Melbourne... It's 1974, and Cyclone Tracy hits. I was at home uh, on the back porch. I heard the news about Tracy. I was home on leave, and the ship was in Sydney. The moment I heard this, I thought, I have a feeling we'll be there'll be some activity coming from this. And I don't think I'd really walked into the house before the phone rang, and the chief of staff in Sydney said, uh, "We'd like you to sail tomorrow and go up and do some relief and for for um, Darwin." Which, of course, we did. I came back and as much as we could, loaded in repairing and rebuilding whatever one could do in Darwin, because at that time I don't think we had any real idea of the extent of the damage. Anyway, we got up there about a week later, I think. It, it was incredible to enter Darwin Harbour and see the extent of the trees being uh, stripped of leaves and so on, and houses absolutely demolished, with the top floor having been blown off. The floor and the stilts underneath where laundries were and cars were parked and so on. It really was an incredible sight. And, of course, these days we've had more incredible sights from around the world. From, but at that time it was uh, fairly new, I think. Uh, and so we anchored and found out what we had to do and the Admiral uh, liaised with the Army chap ashore. I had taken up 15 helicopters, which they had the um, anti-submarine gear taken out of them, so there was room in the uh, cabin of the... Uh, chopper. And um, what I did was to send out working parties of groups of 10 in these choppers and we spread them around the priorities given uh, to us by the people ashore uh, regarding, uh, for instance, all the big department stores, all their freezers. Of course, there was no power in Darwin. So all the freezers had stopped and all the food started to rot. And uh, all that had to be cleaned out. I mean, you can't just leave it there. So some of our work parties had very unattractive jobs. But they went on with that, and we stayed there for quite a long time, I think two and about two, two to three weeks. So I was landing uh, up to about three, 300 people a day. Uh, we all went ashore uh, one way and another. I joined the wardroom gang one day, and we were, went uh, around to one... Um, a hotel area on the, one of the suburbs. It had lost a roof and some walls and so on, so we were trying to do a general clean-up. One of my team came along and said, uh, I wouldn't go down the end room, sir. You, wouldn't, you won't be terribly happy. So, of course, naturally, I went down to the end room to find it was a bar, which was open, um, and it was the early morning. Uh, it was around about 9 o'clock, I suppose. It was full of Darwinians, all enjoying a cold beer, 
And uh, there we were outside uh, flogging around trying to clean up the place. And I thought this is a bit out of balance. But anyway, that was the way the world was that morning and we just got on with it. You become Chief of Naval Personnel not long after that. That was, um, it was uh, very nice, first of all, of course, to be promoted in 76 uh, to two-star. And uh, I had given the job of Chief of Naval Personnel and that allowed me to do two things for years. I had, having been to Royal Naval Staff College in Greenwich in London for six months and studied the uh, curriculum that they had set for the UK people, basically, of course. I think we only had two members on the course. That's all we could allow, we had two members in each course. So we're putting through only about four officers a year in a staff course, which was uh, upgrading in management and general viewing of uh, the world and, uh, and uh, strategies and so on. It was a hole in our organisation. We were deficient in uh, putting officers through staff course. Air Force out here had a staff college, the Army had a staff college, and the Navy didn't have one. So my first priority was to set up a staff college. The staff college opened at the beginning of 80 and I was able to open it. I felt very, very happy about that particular thing. So consequently, when uh, all service staff college were moved to Canberra, the Navy had a working staff college to place in Canberra and lots and lots of officers have been through the course these days. Second thing as Chief of Naval Personnel was, I reckoned everybody was not fit enough and uh, so I uh, issued a directive to the appropriate uh, organisation uh, that I wanted a personal exercise testing. And lots of people looked askance at me because uh, uh, somehow or other they hadn't sort of thought about that. Um, but anyway, it took a while to get it underway and a uh, few people were again it, but it was comforting afterwards uh, that um, when I introduced it when I was last job in 79, people were saying to me, thank you for setting this up, so it's great. You know, everybody was feeling better for their exercise routines and they were checked out every so often and so on. So two things, trying to get the physical side of life uh, organised for the officers and sailors and the whole Navy. That was followed by one year, my last year in the Navy in 1979 as Flag Officer Support Command in Sydney. And uh, that was interesting. That saw me out in January 80, I left the Navy. And so there was no more office on about the 19th of January. I think I left on the 18th. Guy, your service has been incredible to this nation, spanning three wars, and your legacy of leaving the staff training is testament to your dedication. Thank you so much for sharing your wonderful story with us today. Thank you again for your time. Thank you very much, Angus. Thank you. What a remarkable life of service. If you like this conversation with Guy Griffiths, please do leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or even a review. It only takes a moment and it's a big help in getting other people to discover the podcast and hear these remarkable stories. We have another bonus episode coming out this Friday on the history of Australia's special forces, our SAS and commando troops, and it's a fascinating one. Reach out to us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTL Pod. You can write to us at our email address, podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you know a veteran serviceman or servicewoman with a story to tell, 
please get in touch. We would love to have them on the podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.